James chapter 4. Let's go to James chapter 4. Through the years, I have, in various messages, uh, talked about different kinds of phobias that people have. And I'm just curious tonight if there's anyone here who has electrophobia. Electrophobia. I think it's a proper pronunciation according to dictionary.com anyway. Anybody like that? Anybody here tonight have electrophobia? Does anybody know what that is? It's the fear of chickens. The fear of chickens. Now, I have not been shy about my fear of chickens. I just didn't know it actually had a name other than sissy britches. But it does. It, it has a name. It's electrophobia, a fear of chickens. And most of you, you may not have paid attention to it, but most of you have heard the story behind my fear of those ferocious feathered fowl. In case you haven't, here it is. It's short. When I was just a little guy, maybe eight, nine years old, maybe ten, we were on vacation in, in uh, Arkansas. My dad, my Uncle Harley, and we're on his farm, and so they were going out to the little shed there where the chickens were because we were going to have fried chicken. They weren't going to the store to buy it. And so I just went in there with them. And they were just standing there. I, I don't know if they were sizing them up or whatever. But out of nowhere, this hen flies down and lands on my shoulders and starts pecking me on the head. And I just freaked out. I think that may have been the one that we ate for supper. Kevin, Papa, he just freaked out, man. He's over there laughing. He thinks that's pretty funny. I did. And from that time on, even to this day, I have a fear of chickens. Now, for those that are wondering, I do not have a fear of chicken on the plate. As a matter of fact, I love dead chicken. It's one of my favorite meals. But I don't like live ones. And I was reminded of that this past Monday. I was working the day shift at the police department, and I got a call for an animal complaint. You know where this story's going, don't you? All the animal control people were busy. They asked me to go check on this animal complaint, supposedly... Renters had moved out, and there were like three dogs in the yard, and they were tied up, and they were barking, wouldn't stop barking, and, and uh, so they asked if I would go check on it, and, and I did, and sure enough, there were three dogs. They were, just, they were tied up, they had plenty of food, plenty of water, and weren't barking, they were just being lazy dogs. But I'll be switched 
if there was not also a chicken, somebody had taken a piece of twine, tied it around the back leg of this chicken, and then tied it to a post. And I'm there all by myself, except for the lady who called in the complaint. I've got on a cop uniform, I've got a gun. I'm supposed to be like macho. And I was trying not to shake. But it was fun to be me and the chicken. And just about the time, God is my witness, I was going to call for somebody else to come to my location. Because I wasn't dealing with that chicken. I would have taken on any, I would have taken on the meanest of those three dogs. But I wasn't dealing with that chicken. And just about the time I got ready to call for somebody to come to my location, one of the other neighbors came and said, hey, what's going on? I told him what was going on. Oh, I think there's a guy that still lives here. And in the, in the inside, I'm going, amen. Disaster averted. Plus, I got to salvage my manhood. Because I didn't have to call anybody else. And nobody else knows about that. And if I want somebody else to know about that, I will tell them. Fair enough? All right. Like, yeah, whatever. So that's my story of the chicken. I don't like chickens. I'm a chicken. I don't like chickens. Can't do anything about it. There's another phobia that uh, is much more common than electrophobia, and that's arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Anybody here will admit they're afraid of spiders? Come on, guys, if it's true, raise your hand. It's okay. All right. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not afraid of spiders. I am bigger than any spider I have ever seen. But then again, I'm bigger than any chicken I've ever seen. <laughs> so that's probably not a good argument. Anyway, I learned something about, we're going somewhere tonight. I learned something about spiders this week, specifically the black widow. I learned how she kills her prey. Let's take a fly, for example. A black widow spider has no stomach, so she's unable to digest anything within her. And so what she will do is puncture that fly and will then inject it with her digestive juices so that the insides are broken down and literally turned to a warm soup. And then she drinks his insides so that he becomes nothing but a hollow casket. So from now on, when you go, ooh, that fly's caught in there. He's probably dead. 
she sucked out his insides and he's just a hollow casket and I know that's gruesome and that's really gross but I think it's a good illustration for what I want to share with you tonight from the book of James chapter 4 so if you're there let's look at verses 11 and 12 James chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. I preached from the book of James years ago I went back and looked at my notes and for some reason I didn't even address these two verses so we'll do it tonight Verse 11, speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver, verse 12, who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that thou judgest another? For what time we have left tonight, we're going to talk about verbal assassins. Verbal assassins, like the spider who injects her poison into her prey and dissolves their organs but leaves the corpse unharmed if we're not careful our words often damage as well but they don't dissolve mere organs and nerves they dissolve souls turning others into walking caskets if you will because their soul has been dissolved and sucked empty by another's words. Tracking with me? And that's the evil that the Holy Spirit addresses through the pen of James. When James wrote, do not speak evil, it's a, a Greek word that is a combination of two other words, one word meaning against, the other word meaning to speak. And so if we were looking for a, an English phrase that would, would sum up or capture the thought of James here, it would be the phrase, put down, putting others down. And look at the, the qualifier here. James says, don't do this to one another. And what's that next word? Brethren. So church, understand this tonight, the admonition of James in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 is to believers. It matters how we talk to and about one another. Not that it doesn't matter how we talk to or about those who are, are not brothers and sisters in Christ, because it does matter with respect to them as well but in these words James is addressing those who have a common bond in Christ and I would say this to you tonight we owe it to each other as believers and more importantly as members of the same church family 
to speak in a way that is deemed acceptable by biblical standards. I think we could safely say that what James is talking about here is evil speech in general. Whether you want to label it slander or criticism or gossip or belittling, it's all the same in the sense that it's hurtful and it's carnal and it's condemned in the scriptures. I'm guessing it's pretty safe to say tonight that we all understand that it's wrong to maliciously speak things that are untrue about others. Would you all agree with that tonight? But can I just tell you that it's equally true that it's wrong to maliciously speak things that are true? Why is it that we think it's okay to convey negative information if it's true? Well, I'm not gossiping now. I'm telling the truth. James doesn't see it that way at all. I did a little researching today, and do you realize that the dictionary doesn't limit gossip to untruth? Gossips can tell the truth and still be a gossip. Gossip is telling something uncomplimentary about another with the wrong intent or purpose. So church, even if it's true, if it's spoken with the intent to harm in some way, then it's evil speaking. And James says that we're not supposed to do it. And while we're talking about it, it's, it's just as wrong to run somebody down to their face as it is to do it behind their back. Well, preacher, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm not going to talk to anyone behind their back. If I have an issue with them, I'm going to talk to them face to face, and that's all well and good, but if you're doing it in an attempt to put them down or to treat them wrong in some way, then it's wrong. If you're doing it for the intended purpose to be harmful and hurtful, then it's wrong. Evil speaking, putting someone down is harmful and it's unbiblical whether it's done in secret or face to face. I'm almost convinced that some people consider fault finding to be a spiritual gift. Well, what's your gift? Oh, my gift's exhortation. My gift's giving. My gift is, is caring. What's yours? Fault finding. There are like three different places in the epistles where we're given a list of spiritual gifts. And for the life of me, I have yet to find fault finding 
in any of those lists. And here's what fault-finding people don't know. It's that most people, they are already painfully aware of their own faults. They already know that they're this. They already know that they're that. They already know that there's an issue here. They already know that there's an issue there. And in their heart of hearts, they would love to be able to overcome that fault. And many of them are, in fact, trying to do just that. And then someone comes along and unmercifully assaults them, believing that they're doing their spiritual duty, and it devastates them. And as James says in chapter 3, these things ought not so to be. Amen. Another form of evil speaking that's not commonly addressed has to do with the art of minimizing another's virtues and accomplishments. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, by the time you're finished talking to these people, your mental abilities, your athletic accomplishments, your musical skills, and any other virtues that you seem to have had prior to the conversation are now gone. (laughs) Recently, I was sitting at a table with uh, some other pastors. (laughs) The conversation turned to cycling. And so I mentioned a pastor friend of mine who planted a church in Florida who rides with a professional cycling club there in in Naples. And personally, I have always been impressed with their speeds. I mean, he'll post his rides, and I look at that, and I'm thinking, dude, I couldn't even hold on to a car and ride that fast. And I happened to mention that, that I was impressed with the average speeds that, that his team usually rode with, and another pastor's table spoke up and said, well, they wouldn't even be able to, to hang with the guys I ride with. <laughs> and just like that, my excitement about my friend's riding abilities was squashed. He's like, yeah, I knew he was, he was a lazy bum. Yeah, I knew that. I knew he wasn't any good anyway. I mean, a guy averages... 27, 28 miles an hour when he rides, that's pretty quick. But supposedly that wouldn't even hold a candle to what this other guy rides. There are always people who have something newer, something bigger, something better, something faster, something nicer, or they've always done something better or faster, or longer, or more noteworthy than you, or someone else. And man, you, you just entered into this conversation very innocently, very excited. Next thing you know, you're walking out, you're just an idiot. You're just dumb. You ain't, you ain't, you don't have a life. I mean, nothing you have is worth anything. Nothing you've ever done is of uh, any importance. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I don't even know why I got into this conversation. I'm convinced tonight that you could fill a library with the plethora of sinful reasons 
why brothers and sisters in Christ talk down to one another. I just want to share some of those with you real quick, then we'll get into a couple things pertinent to the text tonight. One reason might be revenge. They talk down to somebody because they feel like they committed some discourteous act, whether it was real or imagined. Well, they're not going to treat me that way. And so with their tongue, they talk down and they seek revenge. Evil speaking may be rooted in some arrogant sense of self-righteousness, in which we feel equipped and maybe even to some degree called to unmask the hypocrisies of others. Or it may be motivated, as was the Pharisees. You remember the story in Luke chapter 8, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. It could be fueled by a need to elevate one's self. And so we put others down in hopes of raising ourselves up. To quote one commentator, we thus enjoy the dubious elevation of walking on the bruised heads of others. Because James is addressing this as far back as the early A.D. 60s, then here's what we know tonight. The art of verbal assassination is nothing new. Even then, believers were puncturing one another with fine gastric mixes of slander and gossip and criticism both behind their back and to their face. It was a devil's feast. One thing, however, that is different in our day than in James's day is the availability of social media. Forums like Facebook and Twitter encourage critical comments because criticism, let's be honest, it draws attention. So if you want more likes or more retweets and make some catty comment or offer some clever comeback, sadly, that's our world. Who would ever thought that a pastor would ever stand in the pulpit and talk about Twitter? I mean, when I grew up, a twit was a freshman <laughs> or a punk. Now, we did, now we're talking about Twitter and we're talking about Facebook. And we live in a world where you can become a verbal assassin and become more popular at the same time. <laughs> Imagine that. Now for our text, James gives us two reasons why it's wrong to be a verbal assassin. You with me? Number, number one, he says, you break God's law. James chapter 4, look at verse 11 again. Let me get back there. He said, speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
Now, here's James' argument. You speak evil of your brother, but God says you're supposed to love your brother. So you act as though what God says doesn't matter. And you have judged the law by judging your brother. Now, let me see if I can illustrate that. Suppose that tomorrow you're in a hurry to get home. It's been a busy day at work, and you've got a lot of things you need to get done. And let's suppose you're traveling south on Pershing, and you turn west onto Kansas. You see the road construction. You see the 25-mile-an-hour sign. But you choose to go 45 miles an hour. Whether you get stopped for speeding in a construction zone or not is not the point. The point is, by going 20 miles an hour over the posted speed limit, you are judging that that law doesn't apply to you. Because you're tired and because you're in a hurry, you disregard the law and act if it doesn't matter. Am I okay? What you're saying, in effect, is this law is stupid. And I don't have to obey it because blah, 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 blah. You give all of these reasons why you don't have to go 25. Everybody else does, but you don't have to. And that's exactly what James is talking about in verse 11. Every unkind word, every critical comment, every hateful tweet, every catty Facebook post is a way of proclaiming, I can say what I want to say because God's law doesn't apply to me. I'm judging the law and it's stupid. It doesn't apply to me. I can say what I want to say, I can act the way I want to act, verbal assassins attack because they think they can get away with it. But unlike speeding in a construction zone where you may or may not get caught, listen to me tonight, when you speak evil, you're caught. You're caught. You're caught by the one who even knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We listen, we don't even have to say anything. And we've been caught. God hears, God sees, God knows, and you're without excuse. Now, before I move on, I, I want you to understand that James is not saying that Christians are never supposed to make judgments of any kind. Now, stay with me here. For some reason, this is the only part of Matthew chapter 7 that some people see. They don't even know it's in Matthew chapter 7. They just know it's in the Bible. Oh, well, you know what the Bible says? Judge not. And the only other thing they may know, well, Jesus turned water into wine. We'll not go down that path tonight. But that... I mean, you see that on Facebook all the time. Well, you're supposed to be a Christian, and the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. 
Well, hello, Einstein. The Bible doesn't say I'm not supposed to judge. As a matter of fact, the Bible says I am supposed to exercise judgment. So how about let's back up, bucko, and let's look at those two words in the context of Matthew chapter 7. Now get a witness right there. Again, to their way of thinking, good Christians don't judge anyone, and the ideal preacher is one that is indifferent to people's moral choices. Oh, that preacher just judgmental. A lot of people's interpretation of Matthew 7, 1 is that if you dare make a judgment about someone's actions, then you're going to be in big trouble with God. Of course, again, they neglect the context of the Lord's words in his Sermon on the Mount. Those words are directed to people. If you keep on reading, you'll find this out, that those words are directed to people who are overlooking the logs in their own eyes while judging the smallest of slivers in the eyes of others. If you really want to know the truth, as I said a moment ago, it is the Christian's responsibility to exercise judgment. For example, Jesus said that we are to be aware of false prophets. Pray tell me, how am I going to know if someone is a false prophet if I do not judge the things they say? Matthew 7, 15. How am I supposed to know whether they're speaking truth or not if I don't measure what they say by the standard of the Word of God? You with me? So I'm supposed to exercise some judgment. In the very next verse, Jesus said that we can know them by their fruits. We can know them by what they, their life produces. So again, how am I supposed to know that without exercising careful judgment? Things like immorality, murder, lying, stealing, all of those things are to be judged as sins. And anyone doing such things are to be judged as sinful. So if you want to know what Jesus judges, what Jesus condemns, in Matthew chapter 7, it's judgmentalism. It is a critical and censorious spirit that judges everyone and everything seeking to run others down. That's the context of the two words, judge not, in Matthew chapter 7. Again, it's about motive. James is saying that when anyone speaks unlovingly against a fellow believer and judges them without judging themselves first, then they have broken the law of love, which James calls the royal law. Turn back a page to chapter 2, James chapter 2, and look at verse 8. He said, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. When we sit in judgment of God's law, then we view our opinions, listen to this, 
that we view our opinions as better than God's. It's almost as if, given the chance, we could improve the law. <laughs> to quote one writer, God says this is stupid arrogance of cosmic dimensions. Let me read that again. God says, this is stupid arrogance of cosmic dimensions. And then he gets a little tacky. He says, perhaps we should have been on Sinai with Moses. So here's the first problem with speaking evil of a brother. We're judging the law. We're saying it's stupid, it's irrelevant, it doesn't apply to me. And so, preacher, I've never said that. No, but that's, what you're, that's, that's the idea that you're... That's the thought that you're portraying. Yeah, I know what it says, but this doesn't apply to me. I know the sign says 25, but in small print it ought to say unless you're in a hurry. And I think it's stupid. There's nobody out here. There's nothing going on. I shouldn't have to go 25 miles an hour. And Listen, listen, you are listening to a guy who has made those rationalizations and has made those judgments. You're talking about a guy that sometimes thinks 55 is a stupid speed limit. No, let me rephrase that. Not sometimes. It is always a stupid speed limit. Since, since, I'm, since I'm opening my mouth and inserting my foot, I'll just say this. I think 20 miles an hour on Western, starting at 15th all the way to Tucker, is stupid. Stupid. But guess what? It's the law. And it still applies to me. Matter of fact, I had an officer during school last year that reminded me. Um, it is 20 miles an hour. With his lights blinking. You embarrassed? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But what I'm do what I'm doing when I drive above the speed limit is I'm saying this. It doesn't. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I think it's stupid. And when you and I speak evil of others, are you with me tonight? Play like you're with me. Or we're going to be here a while. When we speak evil of others, that's what we're saying. We're judging the law. I, I think this is stupid. They don't understand. And we give all kinds of justifications, but none of that matters. It's the law. And then here's the second thing James says. When you judge your brother, when you speak evil of your brother, you usurp God's authority. James takes the absurdity of evil speaking a step higher in verse 12, and he suggests that a judgmental person not only sets themselves above the law, but they actually set themselves above God. Look at it. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. So who art thou that judgest another? We'll talk, not take time tonight to read the various verses and passages of Scripture 
But just believe me when I tell you that God's sovereign capacity to save and destroy is repeated over and over and over again in the Old and New Testament. And no one here, I don't think, would argue that there is one God. Well, maybe there are some. There is one God who reigns supreme because he created all things. And because he created all things, and he made all things, and he's the one who makes the rules that govern those things. My house, my rules. I don't care if it's pool or chess or Yahtzee or whatever it is game you're playing. My house, my rules. And in my house, we play make it, take it when we play basketball. And you got to take it back every time. And I got to touch it every time. My house, my rules. You go to a baseball game and you watch as the as the umpires come out, the coaches come out, they're talking with the umpires. You know one of the things that they're talking about? They're talking about house rules. Is that right, brother Steve? Now when the ball goes over here and the ball touches this, it's out of play. It's dead. But if it goes over here and it touches this, then it's, it, it goes over and it does it. it it's good. It's a, it's a live ball. And, and you never hear one, one coach saying, well, I think that's stupid. Well, I don't even that. That's a dumb rule. It's not that way at our house. Well, we're not at your house, Bubba. We're at my house. My house? Is that all right, Nathan? My house, my rules. So if I go to Nathan's house... He plays the game one way, I think it's stupid, he doesn't matter. I can invite him to my house, we can play by my rules. Hey, listen, this world is God's house. And so he gets to make the rules. And he expects us to abide by them. God set the stars in course. No, no one's able to alter their path through the skies. When he makes a declaration, nobody can veto his plans. Why? Um, because he's God? James wants us to think about God in the highest terms. Because the bigger our God then the more we will appreciate what he says and what he does. It's like this, but only on a much larger scale. When, and and you, you parents, you can relate to this. This has happened in your home if you have more than one child. One of your children tells one of their siblings to do something or to not do something. Seldom is it taken very seriously. Am I speaking the truth? Yeah. Shut up. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. Huh? But when mom or dad steps up, says don't do that or do that, that's a game changer. Why? Because they have a much higher view of mom or dad than they do of their punk sister or their big bully brother. And I don't have to do what you tell me to do. How many of you have ever said that to your mom or dad? More than once. 
I don't have to do what you tell me to do. And after you wake up, <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, maybe so. I think James's argument really boils down to this tonight. Who's going to be God? Who's going to be God? I mean, we would all like to be just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, wanted to be. Wasn't that the, the heart of Eve's disobedience? Then Adam's? What did, what did Satan whisper to her? You can be like God. Why God doesn't want you to have this? Because he knows if you partake of this, then you get to be like God. And let's just be honest tonight. How many of us would not be interested in that proposition? Boom, absolutely we would. And who doesn't want to run their own little corner of their world? When you and I decide to play God, stay with me. When you and I decide to play God, then here's the deal. We can say anything we want to say. We can treat anybody the way we want to treat them. We can attack their motives. We can make all kinds of absurd accusations. We can write anything we want to write about them on Facebook. We can stir up a huge tweet storm. We can post all kinds of anonymous criticism, and why not? I mean, come on, when we're God, no one can tell us what to do. Again, that's the whole point. Don't miss this. That's the point that James makes. He says, listen, let me remind you, there is one lawgiver. There is just one God. And in case you don't understand it, it's not you. It's not me. You don't even have to know Greek to understand that. We're not God. We struggle with the sin of evil speaking because it doesn't seem like a great sin to us. And it's so easy to excuse our unkind words by thing, saying things like, well, I was tired. Newsflash, we're all tired. Well, it was her fault. Then let the Lord deal with her. Amen. Well, what I said was the truth. Yeah, but did you have to say it harshly? Did you have to be mean about it? They had it coming. <laughs> that's, my, that's a good one. And my question to you tonight is this. Who appointed you the Lord's Avenger? It needed to be said. Maybe it did. But did it have to be said the way you said it? Well, I'm just doing God's work. <laughs> Are you sure about that? You with me? If we stand back and think about this passage, it should lead us to a very simple conclusion. 
We just need to be real careful and real cautious when we speak. I know you've seen this many times before, but I believe it's worth another look just to remind us to think before we speak, which simply means this. Is it true? And I'll add to that, if it is true, does it need to be spoken? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? What did you accomplish by saying that? Well, it sure made me feel good. And the truth is, that's a lot of why we say what we say, because it makes us feel good. And is it kind? Stop and think before you speak. I know tonight it's easy to think that a message like this doesn't apply to us. Or if it does, it's, it's only on a very small scale. I mean, honestly, we can, think of, we can think of several people tonight that needed that message. That was a good message, preacher. I know some people who needed that. Don't tell me you've never walked out of a church service like, boom, I'm glad they were here tonight. <laughs> but here's what I would challenge you to do as we prepare for the invitation tonight. When you get home tonight, talk to your spouse or talk to a close friend who is here and just ask him this. How much of that message to me I'm challenging to do that tonight how much of that message applies to me uh, <laughs> yeah pastor I don't know that's a little risky yeah it is but it may also be the path to becoming a better Christian 